As we prepare our hearts to receive and study God's Word, let us pray real quick. Lord, we are so thankful to be here this morning. Lord, we ask that as we turn to your Word, uh, Lord, the Spirit of God would go before us and reveal truths to us. Not only reveal truths to us, but Lord, uh, by grace through faith, let us receive those truths, live in those truths, cherish those truths. And Lord, let us reflect those truths. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you will, open your Bibles to Hosea chapter 9. Hosea chapter 9. We're continuing our uh, sermon series through the book of Hosea. We find ourselves in chapter 9 this morning. If you're joining with us on campus and you do not have a copy of God's Word, I would encourage you to look underneath the seat that you're sitting in or underneath the seat in front of you. There should be a blue Bible there. I'd encourage you to take that Bible, open up to page 842, 842. As we turn our attention to uh, chapter 9... Uh, it's going to be extremely important for us to remember really the framework that we laid out in those first three chapters because if we don't take those with us, we may lose sight of the beauty of the gospel. In those first three chapters, remember Hosea was raised up by God to uh, be a prophet, uh, to minister to the people uh, primarily in the northern kingdom, uh, Ephraim or also Israel, known as Israel. This, uh, his ministry started uh, roughly 750 years before the birth of Christ. His ministry lasted 40 years. Uh, now Hosea is getting on the tail end of that ministry. So now we're probably somewhere in the 730 BC area. So uh, time is ticking, right? And uh, God raises up Hosea with a message, a message of warning, a message of repentance, a message of turn back to the Lord. But he does so not just with a spoken word, but he does so with a great sermon illustration with Hosea's uh, marriage to Gomer, the faithfully unfaithful bride. And it's in that marriage that God teaches us within those first three chapters that God loves the unlovable, that he's warning the unfaithful, and that he's constantly good. It is God himself that pleads for his bride to return and it's God himself because of his amazing grace that when we are rebelling when we are turning away from him it is God who intervenes and oftentimes that intervention is discipline and it is not fun right but he does it because he loves us and it's God himself because of his amazing grace not only initiates reconciliation but he also accomplishes it meaning that the, the relationship yes has been broken but I'm going to pursue you, and not only am I going to pursue you, but I'm going to do everything that is necessary to restore that relationship. And why is that important? Why take that into specifically chapter 9? Well, Hosea 8, what we studied last week, uh, is a call of urgency, right? The trumpets sounded again. The warning sirens had sounded that judgment is coming. God's people, if you want to sow into the wind, you're going to eventually reap the whirlwind. In other words, if you want to dabble in your sin and not repent of your sin, sooner or later, the consequences of that sin will going to come on full force. The tornado is coming. And so chapter 8 is an urgency. Chapter 9 is a severity. So now we get a picture of the severity of what judgment looks like. And it's, it's a difficult chapter, to be honest with you. But I think if we stay with it, if we keep those fundamental truths coming into it from the first three chapters, we'll see the beauty of the gospel. And so let's begin. We're going to walk through it verse by verse. We'll pause uh, throughout, say some things, and then uh, we'll have some takeaways toward the end. So please stay with me. Uh, we'll begin in verse uh, 1. The scripture says, Rejoice not, O Israel. Exult not like the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. Threshing 
for and wine that shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them. So we play, we stop right here for just a second. The scripture uh, uses that phrase uh, that Israel is playing the whore. This is the last time that we're going to see uh, this in the book of Hosea, and it's a reminder to us that, that God's people, his bride, have been faithfully unfaithful. They have turned their backs towards God. They have sought other lovers, and, and the scripture says that you need to stop your rejoicing. You need to stop your celebration. And this is significant because the language in the Hebrew is teaching us and telling us that this would have been the language that would have been used during one of the yearly celebrations, the, the, the Feast of Celebration. And so those feasts were designed to, to celebrate God, to praise God for his faithfulness and his provision for providing the grain and the oil and the wine. And, and Hosea says, stop celebrating. Why? Instead of celebrating, you should be repenting. Instead of partying, partying, this is hard, you should be praying, right? You're celebrating now. Life is good now, so you think, but the future looks extremely grim. Why? Because you have pursued other lovers. Things that idols that you think are providing all the things that you need, the, the grain, the oil, and the wine, those things will not satisfy you. In fact, those things will be taken away. So stop celebrating because there's a day that is coming very soon that you will not be satisfied and you will not have joy. It gets worse. Verse 3, they shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. They shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please him. It shall be like the mourner's bread to them. All that who eat of it shall be defiled, for their bread shall be, uh, be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord. Because of your unrepentant sin, you will no longer live in the land that who gave it to you? God gave it to you. This isn't your land. This is the land that I gave you, the promised land. You will no longer be in the land of blessing. And the bread that was used to worship the Lord will no longer be suitable. It will be unclean. It will only be good for you to fill your stomach. That is it. The mourner's bread, it speaks of funeral language, if you will, like a, a wake or a visitation Hosea goes on to say in verse 5, What will you do on the day of the appointed festival and on the day of the feast of the Lord? That is a rhetorical question. What are you going to do to change that? The answer is nothing. There is nothing you can do. Now we need to feel the weight of this. For, for 500 years, over 500 years, the Israelites have been celebrating the Passover feast, but they will no longer be able to do that according to the scriptural requirements when they're in captivity in Assyria. Not only is the food defiled, but they are defiled themselves. Verse 6, For behold, they are going away from destruction, but Egypt shall gather them, Memphis shall bury them, nettles shall possess their precious things of silver, thorns shall be in their tents. So again, the language is that of judgment, punishment. You want to sow in the wind, you're going to reap, reap the whirlwind. And what is that? God's people will be held in captivity to the Assyrians. And those who think they can escape judgment and go to Egypt... They too will not find refuge there. The, the thing of Memphis is talking about the, the capital of Egypt. The land that you once had, the homes, the tents, the homes that you once had, the things that you built, the things that you enjoyed, they will be destroyed. They'll be desolate. Verse 7, the days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. The way the Hebrew is written here, it says that the days of punishment, the days of retribution have already begun. 
The prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. What is it saying there at the, ver- at the end of uh, verse 7? The scripture is teaching us that, that the people were mad at Hosea. You think you're speaking for God? On behalf of God, you're a madman, you're a fool. Now think about the, what's happening here. Remember the celebration that they're having. Things are prosperous, things are going well, so they seem. And Hosea, you're telling us to stop rejoicing? You're telling us to stop celebrating because God's judgment is here? It's coming? You're a madman. You're a fool. God says through Hosea, stop the partying. It's kind of like having the check engine light on your car, right? You can ignore it all you want. In fact, you can learn how to reset it, right? But that doesn't fix the problem, right? That's what God is teaching us through the prophet Hosea. They rejected the prophet Hosea because why? They rejected God first. Verse 8, the prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God. Yet a fowler's snare is on all his ways and hatred is in the house of his God. Because of their sin, they failed to see the warnings that God was giving through the prophet Hosea. Hosea is God's spokesman. They're trapped in their own sin. Like a hunter trying to trap his prey. Their sin is trapping them deeper and deeper and deeper to the point that not only did they hate Hosea, but they're also hating God himself. Verse 9, they have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity and he will punish their sins. This verse reminds us of the darkness of sin. Left to ourselves, guess what? Sin gets extremely, extremely dark. When we give ourselves over to the sins of the flesh, there is a lot of places we can go. And the scripture talks about the event in Gibeah. Again, deeply corrupted. And the illustration is Gibeah. So what happened in Gibeah? I'll be very careful, but I want you to go back and read Judges chapter 19, verse 21, and verse, uh, chapter 19 through chapter 21. What you have is you have a Levite man. Remember, the tribe of Levi are, are the priests, the priestly tribe. They're the ones who are to uh, be the bridge between God's people and God, right? They're the ones who are to re- represent the people to God. You have a, a Levite man who has a concubine. In other words, he, he has someone other than his wife, right? That, that's a red flag, by the way. And this, they go to Gibeah, and while they're in Gibeah, uh, the men of the town of Gibeah want to have relations with this Levite man. Flag number two, right? And instead of that happening, they decide, well, we're going to give the concubine to the men of the city. Well, unfortunately, that, that woman was violated violently throughout the night by multiple people to the point where she was killed. And it didn't stop there. They took her lifeless body and dismembered it and spread it out throughout the land. That's how dark sin can get. Not only that, the tribe of Benjamin was attacked. 24,000 men were killed, leaving them with only 600. Again, think about the book of Judges. Remember what the scripture tells us. When everyone does what is right in their own eyes, there's no bounds for how far your sin will go. And the people in Hosea's day were acting just as evil as those in the book of Judges. God sees it, and they will be held accountable. Verse 10, like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like first fruit of the fig trees in its first season, I saw your fathers. It's almost, you get a glimpse of the heartbreak of God, right? God is reminiscing on how things used to be, right? 
It's kind of like if you're a parent and, and uh, you walk through a season of life where your child is rebellious and you just long for those days where it wasn't like that. And God is saying, I remember when I found you. I remember when I found you in your desperation. Like a grape in the wilderness that doesn't happen. And how I cared for you and how I provided for you and how I loved you. So it's God is reminiscing the heartbreak. You were, you're precious to me. You're my treasured possession. But, but guess what happens in the second part of verse 10? A great contrast. Verse 10. But they, speaking of the people of God, came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. What happened in Baal Peor? Well, you've got to go back and read Numbers 23, chapters 23 through 25. And this, the context here is God's people had just been freed from the hands of the Egyptians, right? God did that. And they're out of captivity now. They're, 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 they can see the promised land. They're not in the promised land, but they can see the promised land. They don't even need binoculars. They're right there. God had just done all these things. And what's happening is another nation... The Moabite nation, the king, Balak, he sees this, this new group of people coming up. And they're a big group of people, and he starts to get scared. And he says, I've got to figure out a way to get the upper hand. So he comes over with the plan A. Well, plan A doesn't work. So what do you do when plan A doesn't work? You go to plan B. Plan B was, I'm going to send the Moabite women to seduce the Israelite men with the hopes of having relations. But not only that, but they will start to worship their God, the false god of Baal. And guess what? Plan B begins to work. So God's people, they're repeating history again. They're going back into captivity again. And God says, I have given you everything you've ever needed. I am your faithful husband, but you turn your back on me. You have consecrated yourself. You have vowed yourself to another lover and not to me. What are the consequences? Verse 11. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. The irony here is the word Ephraim means doubly fruitful. And here the scripture says that they're, they're not going to bear any fruit. Their glory is going to be taken away. And in this context, what is their glory? Their glory is their children. Why? Because children are a blessing from the Lord. So in Hosea 8, you have no fertility in the land. Now Hosea 9, we're told that there will be no fertility in the womb. The children face the grunt of their, the disobedience of their parents, right? Now, we got to hear the weight of this. The scripture says, Woe to them when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, was like a young palm planted in a meadow, but Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. Again, that funeral language picks up again. When God departed his people from his people because of their sin, it brings destruction to a nation you used to be like a young palm planted in the meadow. You were cared for, nurtured. Now, now there will be war. Now there will be exile and captivity. What started off as a tremendously blessed beginning will now be a destructive end. And who is going to feel the weight of that? The next generation. The situation is so tense and heartbreaking that Hosea doesn't even know what to pray for. Have you ever been there before? It's almost like that in verse 14. Give them, O Lord, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb 
and dry breasts. This is a reversal of the blessing that Jacob prayed over Joseph in Genesis 49, verse 25. In Jacob's dying words, he refers to the inheritance as the blessing of the breast and of the womb. And here in Hosea, the reversal has occurred. Those, those blessings are going to be dried up. What started off as lavished spiritual blessings because of your sin, the coming generation will not experience the same blessings. Verse 15, every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them. In other words, that word hate means to reject them. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. Now think about the language. Drive them out. That is forceful language. It's the same language that we see in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sinned. What did God do? God drove them out of the garden. He says, I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. The covenant is broken. The relationship is broken. Now what happened at Gilgal? Now Gilgal is kind of a mixed bag, right? There's some positive and there's some negative. Well, the positive is, that's where, when God delivered his people uh, into the promised land, uh, that was the first place that they went. And it's there that in Joshua 4, it tells us that they put those 12, tri- those 12 stones up, a, a place of remembrance, right? To remember the faithfulness of God. It's there in Gilgal that they, they celebrated the, the first Passover feast in the promised land. So it's a, it's a beautiful picture of God's faithfulness, God's provision, but it's, it's also a negative place. You see, 350 years after those moments, the people of God begin to clamor. We want to be like other nations, right? We, we want an earthly king. And it's there in Gilgal that they crowned Saul, their first earthly king. God's people wanted to be like everybody else. Remember what the Lord said to Samuel? Samuel was grieved by this, by the way. And the Lord said to Samuel, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. And it was there in Gilgal that Saul not only was crowned king, but a little later on in his kingship, he, he took the place of the priest. And he did what only priests were supposed to do. That is a grievous sin against the Lord. And so you have, in the beginning places of the nation of Israel's history, a people of God who are not satisfied with their heavenly king. All of this communicates the heartbreak of God. And then verse 16, the scripture says, Ephraim is stricken, that is, they're wounded. Their root is dried up. The very source of life, right, is gone. They shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, this is a tough one, even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. It's a reminder that a generation will be lost, but not just a generation. There's a a key word that I want to hit on because there is a very grievous word when we think about it, a beloved generation. A beloved generation. Parents love their children, right? They love their children with a profound love. This is a hard verse. If you've ever experienced the loss of a child or barrenness in a womb or miscarriages, this is a hard verse. God, I thought you loved the little children of the world. How is it that those children are going to be killed because of sin? The key is found in beloved. When I struggle with a verse like this, and I, I think you're struggling too, what, what gets me, what, what anchors me back into the grace that's found in the gospel? That God himself 
sent his one and only perfect beloved son to die in my place. That's where the scripture is driving us. You see, it's the man-centered side of us that wants to say, there's no way God could do something like that. But again, this is the judgment against sin, and God's judgment against sin was ultimately placed where? On the shoulders of his own son, Jesus Christ. Now we get to the last verse. Hosea closes, my God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. That phrase, wanderers among the nations, drives us back to Genesis 4 when uh, Cain killed Abel. And because Cain did not repent of his sin, what was his judgment? You will, you will be cast out of your home, essentially. And you will be a wanderer, a restless wanderer for the days of your life. And that's exactly what's going to happen to God's people. They lost their home. All right, so what are our takeaways this morning? Uh, real quickly. And the first one's going to sound a little awkward because we just talked a lot about darkness, right? But it's so important. The first takeaway is God is light. God is light. God is always light. Now, why use the word light? What does light refer to? Well, we get uh, an incredible picture in 1 John 1, 5. The scripture says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. In the Greek, the last phrase is a double negative. Darkness is not in him, not any at all. It's stressing the fact that God is light. Well, what does it mean that God is light? Well, the light of God is, talks about the glory of God, the holiness of God. The prophet Isaiah speaks of this in Isaiah 6, 3, and 1, uh, speaking of the angels, call to another. So uh, Isaiah is getting a glimpse of heaven, right? The worship of heaven, and these angels are worshiping the Lord, and these angels call to one another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is what? Full of his glory. The phrase, holy, 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 is, is meant to push us to the boundaries that we can conceive in our mind of what holiness is all about. The, the fact that God is beautiful and separate from all other things, that he is unlike any other. And when we get to the, to the ends of our boundaries of what that looks like, God's word says, keep going. Keep going. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. He is perfect. He is beautiful in every way, all the time. God's glory as light reminds us that he is the source of life in John 8, 12, Jesus says this. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And this is a beautiful uh, time in uh, the, the people. They're, they're celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles where they will celebrate God's provision, God's faithfulness, primarily back uh, when God delivered them through the hand, uh, through, uh, from the hands of the Egyptians. Now, it's at this point of the Feast of Tabernacles that they would have something called the illumination of the temple. And at the temple, you would have these pillars that would be up, and those pillars would be filled with oil, and those, uh, they, they would be lit. And it would not only light up the temple, but it would light up the entire town, and that's the backdrop when Jesus says, I am what? I am the light of life. He's also the giver of everything good. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is good always. We just sung about God being good, right? In the context of Hosea 9, that's, that's tough, right? But we have to look at it from God's perspective. God is light. But not only that, I am a desperate sinner. I am a desperate sinner. We have to call it what it is, right? Listen, call it what it is. You're a desperate sinner. I am a desperate sinner. The scripture reminds us in James 2, verse 10, how desperate that is. The scripture says, forever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. 
So one deviation from the law at one time means that you're guilty of all of it. Our sin is not graded on a curve. When I was in high school, I took advanced biology. I don't know why, but I did. I thought I was going to be a doctor. Obviously, that didn't work out, right? And there would be times where the test was so hard that the teacher would grade on a curve. And there was a guy in our class named Patrick. He was on my soccer team, on our soccer team. He blew the curve every time. He was brilliant. And I'm like, Patrick, what is wrong with you? Help me help you, right? Well, he didn't listen. So when we got on the field, he took the grunt of the punishment on that. But God does not grade sin on a curve, right? We are all guilty. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if the gospel is good news, and it is, then there must be what? There must be bad news. We miss the mark of God's standard. Not just once, but continuously. We all are helplessly and hopelessly in this predicament, and there's nothing we can do to change it. Even if we bring our A game to the table, right? Our performance is never good enough. The Apostle Paul says it like this in Galatians 3.10, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. The law was never intended for God's people to do it so that they can earn approval with God. The law is a reminder that you cannot do it on your own. How do we know that this is true? Well, look at the people of the Old Testament. If they can't do it right, we, we can't do it right. The scripture tells us that you're cursed. That means you're doomed for destruction. You're a desperate sinner. I'm a desperate sinner. That's why when the prophet Hosea, or Isaiah, right after he uh, hears the angel say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the Lord God Almighty. What is his response? What is his response to the holiness of God? In verse 5 in Isaiah 6 it says, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Woe is me. I have no business standing near your presence. I'm a desperate sinner. Third takeaway, my sin deserves judgment. My sin deserves judgment. So we have the light of God that reminds me that God is always glorious. He's always holy, perfect, good. He's the source of life. And I am the exact opposite of who he is, right? I'm a desperate sinner. His light exposes my sin. And my sin deserves judgment. The Apostle Paul speaks of this in Romans 2, verse 5. The scripture says, But because of your heart, that is your stubborn and impotent, that is your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So I'm, what am I treasuring up? What am I building up? I'm building up an account that is against me, right? It's against me. And God says, No matter how much you tirelessly work, all your performance, all your trying to be more good than bad, it will never be good enough. It will never be good enough. Why? Because God is the judge, no one else. He is the righteous judge. In Romans 3, verse 19, the scripture says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. In other words, we're guilty, and there's nothing we can do to change it. We have no adequate defense. Verse 20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We are without excuse. On the last day, we will have to give an account. We'll have to give an account. Hebrews 4, And no creature is hidden from his sight, 
but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The same God in Hosea's day that says, I will remember your iniquity, I will punish their sins, I will bereave them, I will drive them out, I will love them no more, I will put their beloved children to death, I will reject them, is the same one we will stand before one day. Our sin deserves punishment, but praise be to God, that's not the end of the story. God's love covers my sin. God's love covers my sin. Until we understand the problem, we will never cherish the grace that God has given to us. God's love covers my sin. Romans 3, 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but it doesn't stop there, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The great ray of redeeming love. What God requires... Jesus provides. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as a substitute by his blood to be received by faith. So it's not by works, it's not by performance, it's by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. These verse these verses are colliding everything that we just talked about. We have the light of God, the desperate sinfulness of man, the judgment of God, and the love of God colliding together, right? You see, God doesn't sweep over our sins, sweep them under the carpet like they never happened. That's not what the scripture's teaching us. No, he puts the judgment of our sin on his beloved son. The greatest travesty in human history is that the perfect son of God had to bear the weight of my sin and your sin on the cross. The greatest love ever known was given to us on the most evil day in human history. The redeeming love of God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. He suffered for you and for me. And the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. On the cross, God did reject his people in the person of his Son. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Instead of a land of promise, there was a land of darkness. Instead of milk and honey, there was thirst. Instead of a family, there was separation. Jesus experienced the full extent of the curse from exile so that we would not have to. He endured the judgment we deserve so that we can enjoy the promises of God in Christ. But it doesn't stop there. Peter goes on to say in 1 Peter chapter 2, He himself, speaking of Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. So our sins are not just forgiven, but we have given been given a new life, a life that reflects him. Because of the cross, I am called to follow in the footsteps of Christ's righteousness in this hostile and evil world. I can, because of Jesus Christ, live a life no longer dominated by sin, but every day I can love and serve my Lord. Today, right now, in Christ, I can reflect the character of Christ, the compassion of Christ, the peace of Christ, the forgiveness of Christ, and the love of Christ. We receive the very righteousness of Christ, therefore we can reflect the holiness of of God. God is light. I am a desperate sinner. My sin deserves punishment, but praise be to God. God, God's love covers my sins. A difficult chapter for sure. There's a lot that can hang us up in that chapter, but as long as it drives us to the beauty of the cross, I'm fine with that. Don't lose sight of the grace of God, even in the midst of judgment for sin. It's a reminder to us, every single one of us, that we must believe the gospel while there is still time. God and his grace right now is making known the gift, the great gift of his salvation. And so to that,
Peter says this in 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Don't forget that, yes, judgment is severe in Hosea 9. There were warning signs after warning signs after warning signs, messages of repentance, time and time again. Their greatest enemy, God, is like unlike any other enemy. He warns them before he comes. He says, if you want to be prepared, then you need to turn to me. We are living in a day of grace. But one day, for many, that day will end. The Apostle Peter says in the very next verse, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. That is, it'll be a day of surprise. And when the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. It will be a surprise to all of us. For those in Christ, it will be a glorious surprise. For those who have rejected Jesus Christ, it will not be a glorious surprise. It will be a scary surprise. Have you received Jesus Christ today?